morning, everyone. Welcome to Mountain Radio Astronomy for the month of November. Today we're going to depart a little bit from discussing research occurring on the Green Bank Telescope and other telescopes to go back in time and talk about the founding of the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. On November 17th, 2006, we will officially be 50 years old and we're joined today by Dr. Frank Gigo, who has been working on a book that will chronicle the development of the NRAO and its early years. He's been working on this book diligently for several months. So he's sort of become our resident historian about the early days of NRAO, and we're very pleased to have him with us this morning. Thanks for joining us, Frank. Good morning. So we're going to talk about how NRAO came to be and what the early years were like with you. I guess my first question is, why was the observatory established in the first place, and when did this happen? Tell us a little bit about what things were like with radio astronomy in the mid-50s. Okay, well, the observatory first started being discussed in early 1954. This is when there was a meeting called by various institutions which reviewed the state of radio astronomy. There were a number of radio astronomers in the United States and a number from other countries. What uh, seemed clear in this this meeting was that radio astronomy discoveries in other countries than the United States were, were happening much faster and, and much more quickly than in the United States. Well, let me give a little bit of background. As, as many people that have ever visited the Tour Center know, the first radio astronomical discoveries were made by Carl uh, Jansky working at Bell Labs and followed up a few years later by Grote Reber. And when did these initial discoveries yeah. occur? Jansky's discoveries were made in 1932-1933 and then Reber worked from 1938 for several years following that. And that was pretty much all there was to radio astronomy before World War II. Radio astronomy really got going after World War II and the reason for that was because radar was developed. One of the big technological developments during World War II was the developing uh, radar. And this was done by the British, the Americans, the Australians, and other countries. So Carl Jansky made the initial discovery that objects in space emit radio waves back in 1932, 1933. That's right. Reber followed up in 1938. Why wasn't anything done in radio astronomy from that period in time, the late 30s, all the way through <clears throat> to the end of the war? Uh, I, I think to some extent the Great Depression was going on in 1933, all through the 1930s. Some people at some observatories were interested, but they couldn't afford to hire electrical engineers that could actually uh, work on this problem. So we're, we're now at the end of World War II. There's lots of dishes around, I guess, these radar dishes. Yeah, the electronic equipment was much improved by the end of the war, and, and some of the physicists that had worked on the development of radar, you know, turned to peacetime pursuits, and some of them took up the study of radio astronomy following the war. And for some reason, this, this, was, this developed more quickly in, in England and Australia. The, the British started building arrays of antennas, which helped them pinpoint the locations of radio sources, and so did the Australians. The British started working on a, uh, a very large dish, the 250-foot diameter dish at Jodrell Bank. That project was started in the early 50s. 
and in fact the radio astronomy research was being funded by the governments of those countries which enabled them to build large telescopes and, and arrays of telescopes. This didn't really happen in the United States. It was just a few uh, small research groups uh, in various places. MIT was one of them uh, where the radiation lab at MIT was one of the places that developed radar. The uh, Naval Research Lab was another, and, and the Department of Terrestrial Magnetism. So these had small efforts, but it was clear that if they were going to make much progress, it was going to be necessary for, for them to have large telescopes, large diameter dishes, large arrays of dishes, and this was going to cost a lot of money, and it would, it would require federal funding. Given that, it seemed clear that if it's going to be federally funded, it would be good to have an astronomy center that was open to all U.S. astronomers. Let's take a step back and talk about why radio telescopes have to be big and expensive. Well, first of all, there's the there's what you might call the resolving power. What's the fineness of detail that you can see with the radio telescope? And uh, the answer is that the bigger it is, the finer detail it's possible to detect. And the problem with radio astronomy is that the radio waves are relatively long waves compared with light waves. And so you need a really large diameter telescope in order to get the resolving power even as good as the human eye would be in the optical. The other thing is that the larger the antenna is, of course, the more sensitive it is to uh, the radiation, so you can detect more distant things and, and fainter things. Okay, so there's good, always yeah. a drive for larger size, I'm afraid. Okay, so we are now, what time period is this? Yeah, as I was mentioning, in, in early 54, there, there was a meeting that brought together uh, scientists interested in radio astronomy uh, in Washington and, and also scientists from other countries. And it became clear that the United States really needed some, some large equipment to be built to be able to uh, keep up and, and hopefully surpass the kind of research being done in, in other countries. And uh, some of the people that were having these discussions approached the organization Associated Universities Incorporated about the possibility of setting up an astronomy research center. So now I have to back up and tell you a little bit about Associated Universities, Inc., or, or AUI. They're really our employers uh, yes. here at the observatory. Yes, indeed. But, what, but they started off as, as a consortium of, of universities, as you get from the name Associated Universities, to set up a research institution for nuclear physics. And what they set up was uh, the Brookhaven National Lab, and this was established right after the war, about 1946, 1947. So for this, they built a number of particle accelerators and uh, nuclear reactors, all of the sort of equipment that, that physicists need to do research in nuclear physics. And uh, apparently this was set up, and it, it ran uh, very well, and the physicists liked it. It was open to physicists from all over the country. You didn't have to be on the staff at Brookhaven or anything. And what happened was that after a few years, the board of trustees of AUI thought that it would be maybe worthwhile to try to uh, manage or start some other uh, research organizations. And they hired 
a president uh, to be president of their board of trustees. Uh, one of the new president's uh, uh, jobs was going to be to look for more, uh, more possible research projects to set up. The fellow they hired was a fellow named uh, Lloyd Berkner. And Lloyd Berkner is a very interesting character. He's really the, the person that founded NRAO in a way. He, he did research on the ionosphere, working at the Department of Terrestrial Magnetism. He, he actually designed and improved equipment for measuring the height of layers in the ionosphere, and so was one of the first people to accurately measure the height of those layers. Before he got into that, he, he was in the Navy and flew airplanes in the Navy Reserve, and uh, he joined an expedition to the Antarctic that was largely done by the Navy during 1928-1930. Uh, and he was there because he was, had designed and installed radio equipment in, in airplanes and uh, navigation equipment. So he was along as, as a communications engineer. So this guy knew something about he did the indeed. kind of equipment that you need to he, have to he, do radio astronomy. He knew something about radio technology. During World War II, he, he uh, actually organized a group within the Navy to design and install radar equipment in airplanes. So with this background, uh, it's not, probably no surprise that he was very enthusiastic about the possibility of, of setting up a radio observatory. So AUI was brought into this process, and, and uh, Berkner set up a couple of committees uh, fairly early on, you know, just a few months after this meeting in early 1954. Most of the prominent people that were interested in radio astronomy at that time were, were on these committees. They did some preliminary studies in, I guess, in 1955. He obtained a, a grant from the National Science Foundation to do a detailed study. So there was a, a very detailed study done of uh, setting up a national observatory and uh, what kind of equipment would be needed and so on. It's, it's maybe worth saying that uh, there was a lot of controversy at the time over just what a national observatory should be like or if there should even be a national observatory. There were concerns that a big national center would take money away from, from smaller research projects. The National Science Foundation at the time was funding a lot of uh, small researchers at many different universities and colleges around the country. So so understandably, th these, these uh, faculty at the universities and colleges around the country were worried that the pot of money was going to get divided up yeah. differently and that uh, an NRAO might yeah, so th this was a concern, and, and I guess it's still a concern even, even today, but when the Science Foundation initially uh, asked for funding, they tried to make sure that it was additional money and that it would not cut into uh, the, the individual grants that they give out. And the other aspect was that the observatory would be open to all U.S. scientists, and they could come and use it free of charge, and that, of course, adds some uh, some value to to the other grants that were to the individual grants that are given out, and there were concerns that a, a national observatory would somehow develop its own agenda and 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 dictate what kind of research was to be done and and how to do it. That I guess has always been a worry, but the observatory tries to avoid that by consulting 
as many astronomers around the country and around the world as they can regarding just about anything they do. So there's a, there's a committee of users that use the, obse the observatory telescopes, and they convene workshops and meetings from time to time to uh, consult with astronomers about what new things that might be done. In fact, we had one of these meetings about a month ago, a workshop on new technology that might be considered to be built for the observatory. So in various ways, these criticisms of, of, a, of a giant research organization were, were addressed. Okay, so scientists didn't want the observatory to be so big that it would take all the money right. away from their individual grants. And uh, they wanted to make sure that they were always involved in, in, in the process of deciding what new that's equipment right. would be built and what kind of science would be done. That's right. Okay. And the observatory is pretty much kept to that because, as I say, they, they do try to consult uh, you know, a wide number of astronomers uh, for just about any new instrument or any new equipment that, that is being considered. Okay. So then we could get into this. There, there was kind of a year or more planning process. and and a big planning document came out of this, but among the things discussed were what kind of telescopes to build. And at the time, you know, it was thought, well, you know, 300-foot diameter telescopes, 600-foot, maybe 1,000-foot diameter telescopes should be provided. And uh, after these committees looked at this a good bit, they, they eventually decided that the first thing to be built was going to be a 140-foot diameter telescope. The idea being that this wasn't all that big, and it would be easy to complete this in a couple years, and the observatory would be starting off with a, a nice modestly. telescope. Yeah. Sort of modestly, and then later on they would look into building a 600-foot or, or so foot or something like that. So there were plans for equipment that were fairly detailed, even in this planning document. They had engineering studies from a number of different uh, engineering firms for a 140-foot telescope. Then, of course, another big question was where to put an observatory. So what criteria would you have to meet for a radio observatory? And the, the principal criterion was really to somehow avoid man-made radio waves. In other words, you want to be far enough away from radio stations or any other sort of equipment that, uh, that generates radio waves, which could interfere with the very faint signals that come from the sky. So a whole series of criteria were written down. They hit upon the notion that it would be good to be in a valley surrounded by mountains, because the mountains would kind of shield you from any distant radio stations. You should be in a very low population area, so far from cities and uh, and spark plugs? Far, yeah, far from cars, or not, not very many automobiles with spark plugs, which can generate uh, radio waves. And, uh, you know, far from airports and industrial concentrations. So that was a very big, a very big criterion. There were other things like it should not be too far north. It should be sort of towards the south, where the weather would not be very severe. It should be in a place where there's not severe windstorms. And uh, the last criterion that was added on was that the observatory should be within 300 miles of Washington, D.C. <laughs> that is probably because 
all of the influential radio astronomers who were doing this planning lived on the East Coast. They were either right near Washington or they were at Harvard or MIT. So that probably had a lot to do with that decision. Also, at the same time, there, were, there was planning going on for a National Optical Observatory, which became the Kitt Peak National Observatory out in Arizona. It was clear that would have to go in the south, southwest somewhere, so by symmetry, the radio observatory would go in the east. So there were these criteria, and, and the committee, I think, visited 30 or more sites. And, and with those criteria, it pretty much had to be in the western part of Virginia or West Virginia or Tennessee. Obviously, it had to be in the mountains somewhere. And Greenbank really, uh, after they studied these sites, was at, at the top of the list. It had by far the lowest population of any of the other places that were looked at and it was in a, a broad valley surrounded by mountains. And in fact, the population in 55, when the study was done, within 20 miles of Greenbank, the population was 18,000. And today, I think it's probably less than half that. It's maybe, you know, four or 5,000 now. So it's population-wise, it's even better uh, for a radio observatory than it was before. So that's pretty much how Greenbank got Selected. Got selected. It got selected. The National Science Foundation uh, took this planning document and finally signed a contract with Associated Universities Incorporated to build the observatory. And that's the event that Sue Ann was referring to a few minutes ago, that on November 17, 1956 was the date this contract was signed. And, and with so that, that was signing, we knew where the observatory was going to be built. That's and we right. also knew what telescope was going to be yeah. built. Yeah, so by that time, a lot of this had been figured out. And, of course, the other painful part, I guess, is that uh, now, having figured that all out, they had to buy up the land, and that meant, that meant exercising eminent domain, basically, which, you know, is a dirty word today, and it was a dirty word back uh, in 1956. And I was told by one of the people from one of the families whose land was bought up that they were originally offered $50 an acre by the government man, which probably was sort of a low price for, for land back then. In any case, some of the families got together and, and uh, fought this and ended up getting a much higher price than, than originally offered. In any case, it, it did happen, and uh, 2,700 or acres or so were, were bought up. And boy, 50 years later, eminent domain is back in the headlines again here in Pocahontas County That's anyway. Right. So well, it, I suppose if that only comes up every 50, 50 years, years, you're not, be a good thing. You're not, so, <laughs> not so bad. So, okay, the contract was signed. By the time the contract was signed, the land had been acquired, all of these plans had been made. Nobody actually moved out here until the middle of the following year, 1957. And at that time, there were no accommodations on the site, so the, the people actually lived at the lodge down in Minnehaha Springs initially. So uh, I should say a little bit about some of the first people, some of the first uh, scientific staff that, that came out here to start getting things started. One of them was a fellow named Richard Emberson, who worked for Lloyd Berkner at AUI. He'd been hired as Berkner's executive assistant. 
Emerson was another guy who had worked on development of radar during World War II, and he took on the job of project manager for developing the Green Bank site. So he was the guy that, you know, arranged to have the roads built on the site and get buildings built, and he hired the staff and all of this kind of thing. And meanwhile, Lloyd Berkner, you know, traveled around, was doing his wheeling and dealing, and, and meanwhile, uh, Richard Emerson did all of the, the, the detailed uh, work to make everything happen. The, the first astronomer they hired to, to head up the astronomy department for the new observatory was uh, Dave Heeshin. And Heeshin had just recently got his PhD in astronomy from Harvard. So he came out here and got, uh, got working on how one could actually do some astronomy. And the other person I should mention is, is John Finley who's an Englishman, he actually had worked for the British radar development in World War II, and he was recruited by Lloyd Berkner on a trip to England. Findlay was here to head up the electronics department to design receivers and electronics. So that, that was the nucleus of... So we had a staff of three <laughs> to start well, that, out with. Well, that was really, really yeah. the nucleus. Uh -huh. uh, and and, and Heeshin and Finley, I, I should mention, stayed with the observatory their entire career. So they got started and, and modified some of the existing farmhouses to make offices and uh, electronic labs. And there was actually a, a little uh, groundbreaking ceremony in October of 57. So about a year after the contract signed, there were actually you know, people on the site doing some work, roads were beginning to be built, and, and so on. And there were a lot of dignitaries from AUI and, and various astronomers from around the country that showed up for this groundbreaking ceremony. Was this a groundbreaking ceremony. for a telescope? No, this was just for the for site. The, for the observatory. For the whole observatory. Okay. And then things really started happening, I guess, the following year, in 58. They actually had a groundbreaking for the 140-foot telescope. By that time, they'd selected a, a company, a contractor, to build the telescope. It was the Bliss Company of Canton, Ohio. Also during 1958, they, they really wanted to have some kind of telescope, some kind of radio telescope, so they could get started doing research and actually start doing some astronomy. And, and what was built was an 85-foot diameter telescope, which was a reasonably big enough to be able to start doing some research. And it really was sort of an off-the-shelf telescope. It's called the Tatel Telescope. Tourists to the observatory may have noticed that. That's because the, the basic design for that telescope was, was done by a fellow named Howard Tatel, not too surprising. But unfortunately, he died before the telescope was finished, and so it was, it was named in his memory. Finally, they had at least a modest-sized telescope. And, and there did begin to be astronomers coming from universities in the area who started using the Tatel telescope. And, and some, some more astronomers came onto the, uh, onto the staff. One, one of them that's fairly well known is Frank Drake. Frank Drake is, is pretty well known for having been the first person to, uh, to look for SETI, or in other words, to look for signals from extraterrestrial intelligence using the 85-foot telescope. But he actually did some real astronomy as well. <laughs> uh, SETI was really just a small part of, of what he did. What were some of the initial experiments that he did? Uh, well, he did some of the first uh, mapping of the galactic center, and, and he did measurements of the temperatures of the, of the planets, you know, measuring the microwave radiation from the surface of the planets. There was an interesting article about this in the 
observatory internal newsletter pointing out that the temperature of Venus had been measured by a flyby by the Mariner 2 spacecraft in, in 62, you know, at a cost of some large number of millions of dollars, but that the year before that, Frank Drake had measured the temperature of the surface of Venus with the 85-foot telescope and had gotten a, a more accurate number. And this, of course, had not cost anything like that amount of money. All right, <clears throat> so we are now in business. We have an 85-foot telescope. The 140-foot telescope is under construction, but it's not going very well. That's right. In sort of 1959, lots of construction was going on. The, the main buildings that are here, the, the residence hall, the cafeteria, the works area building, the, the office building, which we now call the Jansky Lab, were all constructed. They were all done by sort of mid to end of 59. The initial construction on the 140-foot telescope was going on also. They, they built the big concrete pedestal building. The lower part of it was complete by the end of 59. But it was getting clear that the 140-foot construction was going to be way behind schedule. It should have been finished by 1960, but, but it wasn't. And the, uh, the contractor actually had a good bit of trouble with it. There were various things. It's maybe a little easier to point to a diagram, but, <laughs> right. but I can't do that. The whole, the, uh, whole design of the 140-foot uh, telescope, it's an equatorial design, which means that the whole thing is tilted up at 38 degrees to the horizontal so that it, it has an axis that parallels the Earth's axis. Well, it makes it very difficult to balance yeah. such a telescope when the whole thing's tilted. You don't want it to fall over and hit the ground when you tip, That's tip the right. dish over. So it's, it's a bit more of a difficult engineering problem to build it that way, but it's easier to uh, run it. In other words, if it, to follow an object across the sky with such a telescope, you just rotate it at a constant speed about its polar axis. But the design had the entire weight resting on this, this very large uh, spherical bearing. And the techniques that the contractor was using to build this big spherical bearing uh, didn't seem to work. They, they were welding pieces of steel together, and it keep, kept seeming to produce a lot of cracks in the material, and they couldn't get it to exactly the right tolerances. So this was a big problem. Then someone realized that the type of steel they were using for the polar shaft and the yoke, which is the part that held the dish up, was a, was a kind of steel that was subject to what, what they call brittle fracture, which means if the temperature changes by a large amount over a short period of time, the steel can uh, suddenly crack and fall apart. Ugh. Very bad. That would be terrible. Sort of thing <laughs> happened. And, and of course, you know, there are big temperature changes in Green Bank. You, you, you know, it can be a moderately warm day, and then the temperature can drop to below freezing. So this was a big problem, and there were lots of discussions going on about what to do about it, and this dragged on for quite a while. So while this was dragging on, the, the scientists there, Frank Drake and Dave Heeshan and John Finley, thought that really they should try to build some large telescope quickly so that they could uh, attract astronomers and have the place actually start becoming a national center which, for which it would need a, a large size telescope of some sort. 
And the problem was, you know, at that point they had an 85-foot telescope, but this was nothing special because there were a number of other universities that had 85-foot telescopes at that time. And with the 140-foot project behind schedule and looking, beginning to look more and more like an expensive boondoggle, they were concerned the whole thing would be shut down. And so they really felt they needed some kind of large instrument to prove that the observatory could work as a national observatory. So they looked at very many different designs, eventually came up with a 300-foot dish, but not fully steerable. It would be fixed to the ground. It could be rotated uh, north and south over sort of a limited range, and so that would make it cheaper to build, not as much steel. These plans went on for several years, but they eventually hit on the, the meridian transit design. Well, once they decided to build the 300-foot telescope, it didn't take very long to build it. It didn't take very it. long to build it. And curiously enough, the, the first director of the observatory was, was a, an astronomer named Otto Struve, who, who joined in 1959. He was a person with a big international reputation, although not actually a radio astronomer. But he went to bat to, with NSF uh, and, and convinced them that, that they should fund this 300-foot. Otherwise, that might never have happened. And it, it was quite remarkable because they uh, began the construction on that in early 1961. And, and in under two years, toward the end of 62, it, w it was finished. And this was done because, well, it, it was designed not to have any special strange or specialized uh, techniques. It was done with sort of with standard types of steel that were used for building large bridges and standard construction techniques. So finally at the end of 62 the observatory had a much bigger telescope than anyone else and uh, it worked very well and, and astronomers from uh, many different institutions started visiting. So you know, that was intended as kind of a stopgap until the 140-foot was finished, but it in fact uh, lasted for 26 years and, and became much more productive than anyone ever, ever expected. So when did the 140-foot telescope finally uh, get done? When was it turned on for people to use? It, it was finally done in 1965. So the, uh, getting back to that, that, that project was, was reorganized in 62. Uh, basically, the original contractor was fired, and uh, they brought in some engineering consultants and, and redesigned large parts of it. The, the success was probably because they, they hired a guy to be the project manager on this, who was a fellow named Max Small, who had been, he, he was at that time the business manager for AUI, but apparently very good troubleshooter sort of person. Once he got on the project, it really went forward, and although it did take another three years to complete. And one, once the 300-foot was complete, uh, astronomers started using it right away, and it, it became very productive. A lot of the studies of, of warm gas around uh, stars that are, that are forming were done, and people discovered a lot of large molecules. Uh. So we have now three telescopes. We're finally a national observatory. We have to Fast forward, <laughs> let's fast forward to 1988 because I want to tell, I want to get the whole timeline to the GBT. What happened in November, again now, 1988? Right. Well, uh, quite unexpectedly, the 300-foot the 
foot telescope collapsed in, in November of, of 1988. The, the studies that were done later showed that apparently what had happened was metal fatigue as a result of flexing some of the main structural members that hold it together. The original plan, though, if you recall, was that, you know, well, it'll last for five years and, and we'll get some science out of it. And, and so it actually lasted for 26 years, so it did much better than anyone expected. So the telescope did collapse, and it was, you know, a big calamity. Fortunately, no one was hurt in the process. Well, what Suan is getting at is that the, uh, the fact that it collapsed was, was uh, such a major event that it, it made it possible to uh, get money for a new telescope. It, it made it possible for, for Senator Byrd of West Virginia to work on getting an appropriation for a new telescope. In a sense, back in 62, when the 300-foot was, was built, in, in a sense, the 300-foot saved NRAO, which might have been shut down if, if nothing like that had come, come along. And in 1988, 26 years later, what happened? You had two now very old telescopes there, and, and various funding committees were thinking, you know, do we really need to keep funding these very old telescopes? So by collapsing, the 300-foot saved NRAO yet again by making it possible for a new, a new telescope to be built. Well, that's a, that's a real interesting connection there. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that before. Frank, we are definitely out of time here, but I'm going to uh, say thank you so much for giving us the early history of the NRAO and tell us here in just the last few seconds a little bit about this compilation, this book that you're working on. And, when people that might have an interest to take a look at it. Well, we, we are working on this book, which is a compilation of papers uh, from two conferences. One was really a retrospective conference on the 300-foot telescope, another about the 140-foot telescope. And uh, it's it has three editors, which makes it somewhat difficult to get everyone to read all of the changes in a very timely manner, but, but we're certainly hoping that it will be ready to go to the printers in, in a month or two, and so maybe by the middle of next year it will actually be available. That couldn't be more perfect timing, really. And folks, I have seen uh, the draft form of this book. It, it looks like a big three-ring binder notebook right now, but it's got some fabulous pictures of the early years here in Green Bank as the observatory was being built. So thanks once again, Frank, for being with us this morning. Okay, well, you're very welcome. This has been jolly. <laughs>